All right, we continue uh, forward in our legends as we're looking at different uh, men and women in church history who God used in a major way. And so before we begin, let's uh, say a word of prayer together. Father, we're encouraged by the lives that have gone before us, the testimonies that have gone before us. We stand on the shoulder of giants. And we benefit greatly because of the faith and sacrifice of many others who have gone before us. I pray your blessing this evening. Pray that you would speak to us in practical ways. That we would be motivated and encouraged by the life that we study tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have the honor tonight of bringing the first story of our female legend. Tonight we get to study the amazing life of the amazing woman of God named Susanna Wesley. Now how many of you have heard of this person, Susanna Wesley? She's got an incredible story and God used her in a fantastic way. I I was so blessed as I was studying through all the different uh, chapters of her life. Quick facts. She was born in 1669 and she died in 1742 at the age of 73. She was an English woman. Born in England, raised in England, lived in England her whole life. She was born in London. She spent most of her time in this little village called Epworth in Lincolnshire in northern England. Her husband's name was Samuel Wesley. Of course, she is known for her two sons. She's the mother of John and Charles Wesley. Now, you've heard those names. And she is oftentimes referred to in history as the mother of of Methodism, the mother of the Methodist denomination. So the geographical setting for her life, she grew up in England, she was born here in London. She would eventually spend most of her life way up here, this real countryside portion of England, this place called Epworth. And if you Go there today, you'll, it'll look something like that. It's this beautiful, quaint little village. Um, right there, they have St. Andrew's Parish, which is where Samuel Wesley preached. Their rectory is located there. This is where Susanna lived. This is where John and Charles grew up. In fact, it's sort of a mecca for Methodists. Pilgrims will come from all over the world to visit Epworth, and walk through those different areas. So I want you to understand some church background if you're going to understand her life. For a little over a thousand years, beginning in the fourth century, there was basically one church. It was the Roman Catholic Church. That was the church that was in charge in England and really most of Europe. Western Europe. One church for about 1,200 years, the Roman Catholic Church, one Bible, the Latin Vulgate. Right about 
1517, October 31st, that's when Martin Luther nails his 95 theses to the church door. And that began the Reformation. And of course, Martin Luther, Daniel spoke about him a couple weeks ago. He stood on the shoulders of John Wycliffe, who I talked about, Jan Hus. But it kicked off this Reformation, and it gave everybody two churches now to choose from. The Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Well, in the 16th century, the official state church of England was established. And this was the church that was, you know, the official state church for the whole country of England. Now, when it was first established, it was very much just like a Roman Catholic church, except there was no ties to Rome or the Pope. So it acted like a Roman Catholic church, but the Pope of the Church of England was the King of England. How convenient was that, right? So that's what the state church was like initially. Very quickly, however, it became Protestant. The official state church of England became Protestant. The priests were able to marry. All the different Protestant beliefs became the main factors of the church. And by the way, the Church of England still exists today as a Protestant church. And out of the Church of England come the Anglicans and the Episcopalians. Have you heard of those? They're still around. Their roots go back to the Church of England. Okay, so in the 16th to 18th centuries, there was a rise in nonconformists, also called dissenters. Okay, so you have the official state church of England, which is Protestant. There were some Protestant Christians that didn't like what the Church of England was teaching. They got into different issues, and so they splintered off and started their own congregations, which would become denominations, the Puritans, the Presbyterians, and the Baptists. So you got the Roman Catholic Church, the established Protestant Church of England, and all these splinter, the dissenters, the nonconformists. The Methodists, their movement began in the early part of the 1700s, and it grew, and they had their first Methodist convention in 1744. But here's something that's key to understand. The Methodists originally were not the nonconformists. They always stayed under the Church of England. They were a part of the state church. That's where they wanted to stay. Now, eventually, and I would say inevitably, they split. They did split away from the Church of England in 1797. But that was many years after Susanna Wesley died. And that was actually many years after Charles and John Wesley, the founders of Methodism, died. But they did eventually become a separate 
denomination away from the Church of England. So all that background to let you know, this is where Susanna Wesley lived, right in that time period. So she's living in England. The church, state church of England is Protestant, and you have these dissenters. And towards the end of her life, Methodism is born by her sons. And then eventually she dies even before that first convention. So just keep that in mind as you consider her life story. So Susanna was born an Annesley. That's her maiden name. She was born into a household of Puritan parents. She was the 25th child of 25. The 25th child of child, all 25 children. Her parents lived in Lutton and, and they were Puritan. So they were dissenters. They were nonconformists. And in fact, her father, the Reverend Dr. Samuel Annesley, very serious dude. Doesn't he look serious? He looks like a no-nonsense sort of guy. And he was very serious. Dr. Samuel Annesley began the Church of England. He was an Anglican ordained priest. But he ran into problems with that church got into some disagreements, began teaching uh, different things, so he was kicked out of the Church of England. So he leaves the Church of England, and he starts a church, a nonconformist church, Puritans and Presbyterians, right down the street, and pretty soon he's got hundreds of people coming to his church. So this guy's a big-time dissenter. He's one of the major voices for the dissenting Movement. Some called him the St. Paul of the dissenter movement. Well, this guy had some amazing people that were a part of his church. Some of the greatest Puritan writers were a part of his church. Richard Baxter, John Owen, and Thomas Manton. So they were a part of his church. They spent a lot of time over at his house. They would talk theology. They would talk about the Church of England, the pros and the cons and all of that. There was also a man that went to his church who was named Daniel Defoe, who would later go on to write that book, Robinson Crusoe. So he had really heavy hitter intellectuals as a part of his church and as a part of his uh, friendship. Little Susanna Annesley grew up in that environment. He grew up meeting the best thinkers, hearing them debate the theology. Also, her uh, father being a pastor, he would have had lots of books. She She read all of the different theological books. She uh, did a whole bunch of studies. She was never uh, formally educated. Her education was informal. But she was absolutely brilliant. She grasped language. She grasped theology. It was said later 
that she knew theology better than most pastors as a little girl. In the Annesley home, private, personal, religious devotion was required. Everyone in the family was expected to spend alone time with God, read the scriptures for themselves, pray, and she was absolutely dedicated in that, even as a young girl. Looking back on her life, she would write, I will tell you what rule I observed when I was young and too much addicted to childish diversions, which was this, never to spend more time in mere recreation in one day than I spent in private religious devotions. So as a little girl, she decided that she would spend more time reading the Bible than looking at Facebook or spending time on Netflix or playing with dolls or whatever the case. So at the youngest of ages, she became deeply committed in her alone times with God. And this would continue for the rest of her life. Now because of this upbringing... She became a fiercely stubborn, independent thinker. Among the Puritans and the dissenters, they said, look, you read your Bible, you study, you pray, and let your conscience and conviction be the arbiter of the decisions that you're going to make. So she became very independent in her thinking. So much so, I had no idea about this, about her. At the age of 12, she decided to join the Church of England. Her dad's a dissenter. He's a pastor of one of the Presbyterian congregations. He's a leading thinker. And at the age of 12, she comes to dad and said, Dad, I want to join the state Church of England. And to his great credit, he led her. She had studied. She had heard all the arguments in their parlor that were for the Church of England and that were against the Church of England. And in her young mind, she felt the Holy Spirit, the Lord, tell her to be a part of the Church of England. In her mind, the idea of a national church that brought unity was a bigger factor. So she joined the church. In 1688, at the age of 19, she marries Samuel Wesley. She meets Samuel Wesley at the official Church of England in London. Samuel Wesley had the same story that she did. He was born and raised in a dissenting family, a Puritan family. But he grew up and he decided that he wanted to join the Church of England. So they married, and as a married couple, they would be faithful to the Church of England for the rest of their life. Samuel Wesley would become an ordained Uh, priest, Anglican priest. He would serve the Church of England. He'd be moved around in different spots in England. But eventually he was sent permanently 
to that place called Epworth. And that's how they got to Epworth. Susanna follows her husband. He's the rector in Epter, and they'll be there for most of their life. There's a picture of the St. Andrew's Parish, still there today. It's been restored, of course, but that is where Samuel Wesley preached for most of his life. Being the rector, they were given a rectory. They were given a house. The church provided the Wesley family with a house. They were also given servants, hired help that would help them with some of the domestic chores and some of the different things uh, that they had to deal with, you know, maintenance and, and all of that. So that was a pretty good deal. They got a house. They got some help. Now, they had to continue to find sources of income other ways to supplement their income. But they lived there in that house. Together, they had 19 children. They lost nine of them. Imagine that. Ten of their children survived infancy. Of the ten that survived, John Wesley was born on June 28, 1703. And then his younger brother, Charles, born on December 18, 1707. So... Susanna Wesley had a very difficult, difficult life. She struggled in many, many different kinds of ways. First of all, can you imagine losing nine kids? Two sets of twins they lost. One of their infants, uh, I, don't, I, I can't remember if it was a daughter, daughter or a son, was accidentally smothered to death under a blanket, under the care of a midwife. Total accident, but lost a child that way. Susanna and Samuel had a terrible marriage. They agreed on having children. They agreed on their loyalty to the Church of England. But that's about all they agreed on. Susanna and Samuel fought. They disagreed politically. They disagreed on finances. They disagreed on administration in the church. They had all these different really bad quarrels. On one occasion during their marriage, there was a dispute in England over who should be the rightful king. Now, I don't know all the details of this. One king wanted to be king. Another king wanted to be king. King James II was forced into exile. King William and Queen Mary took over. Susanna was loyal to King James. Samuel was loyal to King William and Queen Mary. And they fought over that. And as the story goes, one night Samuel was praying for King William 
and she refused to say amen. Refused to say amen. Samuel's response was, you and I must part, for if we have two kings, we have two beds. He left her for a year. Took off. I wonder how that couple would do in the age of Trump, Biden. (laughs) They split over that. He left her for a year with all the kids in the rectory to take care of all the finances and all of the administration. This would happen frequently throughout their entire marriage. He'd leave her. He'd take off. He'd leave her all by herself. She was essentially a single mom for most of her marriage. Now, the other thing about Samuel was he was a terrible provider. He was terrible with finances. He got into a lot of debt. He was one of these guys who would try all of these different things, get into a bunch of debt, and always have some wild scheme. So there are several months where he had to spend a whole lot of time, several months, in jail because he couldn't pay back a debt until some family member would come along and buy him out of debt. So he was a terrible provider. And under his stewardship, their family struggled a lot. In fact, when Samuel dies, she has to leave the rectory because the rector's dead and they got to move in the new rector for that. She left, he left his wife with a load of debt so much that she had to sell off more than half of her furnishings to pay the debt. So it was a very, very difficult marriage, and there was a lot of trouble. Now, I say that this house was a blessing. So they were able to live in this uh, famous rectory, still there. When Samuel had left for that year, when they got in that political fight, towards the end of that year, their house almost completely burned down. And in fact, one of their daughters almost died. So Samuel comes back. That's how he came back home. To rebuild the house and to move back in. And then a few years later, on February 9th, 1709, they had another fire. And this one burned the entire house down. Everyone got out of the house. When they got out to the front yard... They're, you know, who are we missing? They were missing five-year-old John Wesley. Couldn't find him. At the last minute, little five-year-old John Wesley looks out of the window from the upper room. A human ladder is formed. And they're able to get John Wesley out of the house. They saved his life. He almost died at the age of five. John Wesley never forgot that, and for the rest of his life, he would often refer to himself as the brand that was snatched out of the fire. So the house burned down again. Samuel has it rebuilt. This time he'll use brick. He goes into more debt. So they're living in an unsafe house, 
And then, in 1716, December to January 1717, they experienced what was called the Epworth Rectory Haunting, also known as the Wesley Poltergeist. It is said from all the different members of the family, including Susanna, that the house was plagued by a series of regularly occurring loud noises and knockings claimed to be caused by a ghost. Wesley's fourth eldest daughter, Hetty, nicknamed the spirit Old Jeffrey, who is said to have made his presence known to all on Christmas Day. So for two months, they battled a demon in that house. So it's burning down. Demons are causing problems. It was a big time struggle for her. And that's where she lived for most of her life. And can you imagine what happened under that roof for most of her life? Living essentially as a single mom with no support from a husband. Hardly any finances to speak of. There she is, caring for ten children while losing nine of them. This was the life that she had to live. So, there are some incredible qualities that come from Susanna Wesley. First of all, her spiritual devotion, as I said, she never lost her faith her entire life. She continued to grow in her Christian walk. She was personally devoted to meeting with God every day for at least an hour for her whole life. She was also known for her organization. And she was extremely methodical. She ran a tight ship. You'd have to with 10 kids, don't you think? Running around the house. So she came up with a schedule. She came up with rules. She came up with requirements for the whole family. And everyone was to abide by these. Susanna's house rules. I'm not going to give you a bunch of them, just a few. One of her rules was no child was to be given a thing because he cried for it. If you cried for it, you didn't get it. If a child wanted to cry, cry softly in her house. No eating and drinking between meals, period. Except when you're sick. I wonder how many kids pretended to be sick. Sleeping was regulated. When very small, a child was given three hours in the morning and three in the afternoon. This was shortened until no sleeping was allowed during the daytime. Punctually, the little ones were laid in the cradle and rocked to sleep. At 7 p.m., each child was put to bed. At 8 p.m., she left the room. She never allowed herself to sit by the bed until the child sleeps. The little ones had their own tables near the main table. When they could handle fork and knife, they were promoted to the family table. Each one must eat and drink everything before him. Children must address each other as sister or brother. Brother John, 
Brother Charles, Sister Hetty. Everyone was required to speak like that. She put these rules in place, and everyone was required to keep that. Now, it becomes even more impressive. Susanna Wesley invented homeschooling. She took it upon herself to homeschool her children, including the daughters. They were given an education equal right with the sons. So at her house, school was in session six days a week, including Saturday. They met six hours a day from 9 to 12 and 2 to 5 p.m., six days a week. School always began and closed with scripture reading, prayer, and a hymn. It was just, here's how it goes. Every child at age five was expected to learn and memorize the entire alphabet on their first day of school. Period. Your first day of school, she required you to learn the entire alphabet. And also to begin memorizing some verses in the scripture. She came up with the curriculum to take care of all of her different kids at different ages. Of course, as some of the kids got older, she taught them how to tutor the younger. She was incredibly organized. She had some textbooks that she could use, but a lot of times she didn't like the textbooks that were out there. So she created her own textbooks. There's a picture of her desk that's still in the rectory there today. She wrote three textbooks, one called The Nature of the Universe, Proving a Creator. That she began teaching to her kids when they were young. Her next textbook was called Exposition of Apostles' Creed. The next was The Exposition of Ten Commandments. Brilliant woman. All this that she had so carefully planned out. And then I think probably one of the most ingenious things to her schedule. Every day, without exception, except on Sunday, she scheduled one hour of one-on-one time with each one of her kids. One-on-one time with each kid all 10 of them, and it would rotate. And in that one-on-one time, that one-hour time with mom, she would teach the child the Bible, how to pray, all about theology, all of these different things. That's a famous little pendant, Mrs. Susanna Wesley teaching her son John. John Wesley would grow up to say, I learned more about Christianity from my mother than from all the theologians in England. I think that's so beautiful that she would spend that time. And then, of course, she never, without exception, skipped her own private time. In all that was going on in their household, she always found time to spend time with the Lord, to continue to read, to continue to pray, to continue to push herself 
in spiritual uh, growth. And there's even a legend, and we don't know how true this is, but I, I, I suspect it probably was. She had an apron that she would wear. And when she needed private time and all the kids are running around, she'd take that apron off and she'd drape it over her head. And that was a signal to all the kids, mommy's praying, stay away. And she would hide under this prayer apron and there spend time with the Lord. I don't know how she did it. She was a spreadsheeter before there were Excel spreadsheet programs, don't you think? Can you imagine how incredibly organized and methodical she was in the way she structured life for herself and for her kids? Had a huge impact on them. Susanna Wesley was also a promoter of lay ministry. Now, this is very important. When she was part of the Church of England in that day, there was this huge distinction between the clergy and the lay people. The clergy were the anointed priests. They had all the education. They were to do all of the Bible teaching. They were to teach all of the theology. The normal people, the lay people that came to church, they just came to receive. They would not teach. They wouldn't instruct. They wouldn't be a part of any of that. Susanna didn't like that. She liked to give power to lay people. And in fact, she, as a lay person, said, hey, I teach theology to my ten kids. You come try to do that. And she had a lot of belief in this idea that just the normal people in the church that aren't the ordained, they're not the paid professionals, God can use them. And she lived that way in many respects. So there's something really funny that happens in 1712. Her husband, Samuel, leaves to London, and he's gone for six months. He's there for some kind of a convention. Now, usually when Samuel left, he had an assistant pastor uh, known as a curate back then who would fill in for him and do all the preaching, you know, the ordained clergy guy. And in this case, in 1712, when she left, there was an assistant pastor there, and his name was Inman, and he was a lousy teacher. He was a terrible preacher. Nobody wanted to listen to him. So the Sunday morning services were like just collapsing because nobody wanted to be there. Well, Susanna became very concerned. She was worried that her kids weren't getting enough uh, spiritual food. So on Sunday after church around her kitchen table, she began a little Bible study with just her kids, the maid servants. And before long, word spread. Neighbors started showing up. And before long, her parlor was filled with 200 members of the congregation. They weren't going to Sunday morning anymore. They were going to Susanna Wesley's parlor, where she was just taking them methodically through little Bible study lessons and prayer and and all of that. Well, Inman, do you think he liked that? Oh, no. Nobody was coming to his services. They were all going to Susanna's 
kitchen. So he writes a letter to Samuel, who's in London. You know what your wife's doing here? Samuel gets a letter, and he writes a letter to Susanna and says, Honey, you got to stop this. This isn't good. This does not look right. You shouldn't do that. So she writes a letter back to her husband, and it's famous for these words that she writes. I love it. If you do, after all, think fit to dissolve this assembly, do not tell me that you desire me to do it, for that will not satisfy my conscience. But send me your positive command in such full and express terms as may absolve me from all guilt and punishment for neglecting this opportunity of doing good when you and I shall appear before the great and awful tribunal of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is called dropping the mic right there. (laughs) If you're going to tell me to stop this assembly, honey, then you better tell me in such a way that you're confident that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I'll be... uh, I won't be condemned. Samuel let her continue. And she continued with those meetings until he returned home and he took over his duties preaching on Sunday morning. He returned to a church that doubled, even tripled in size in his absence. Because of the great leader she was, the great lay leader and teacher In Bible study, she was. John and Charles sat around that kitchen during that time. John was nine. Charles was seven. And they watched mommy work like that. And it had a profound effect on them. Now, she was also one who would promote... Lots of people getting involved. And it was really from her idea that all of these small group Bible studies would begin. And every small group didn't have to have an anointed priest. You could have a lay leader. You could have somebody lead those small groups. And that's a big part of the Methodist movement. So this linked her to Methodism. Big time. John and Charles grow up. They go to Oxford. When they're at Oxford, uh, John becomes like a leader. He becomes like one of the, uh, an assistant professors because he's much older than Charles. When Charles gets there, they're attending that Sunday morning church service, but Charles is not getting everything that he wants there, so he begins to ask fellow students to meet with him regularly on the weeknights, and they sit around the kitchen table. And they sing hymns, and they pray, and they study the Bible together. It grows. John Wesley joins it, and it grows. So 
five, six nights a week, in addition to Sunday morning, they'd still go to the Sunday morning service. They'd have these small group meetings. They systematically, methodically went through scripture. They would also schedule on the calendar every week some charity organization that they were going to support. Now, where do you think they learned that from? Mom. Well, a lot of people at Oxford thought they were being too spiritual, and they sort of would insult them. They called Charles Wesley's club the Holy Club. So you're one of those holier-than-thous, right? And they eventually insulted them by calling them the Methodists. That insult stuck. That would be the label for their movement. So years later, I'm, I'm passing a lot of time, years later, John and, Wes, and uh, Charles meet uh, George Whitfield, who's an incredible man of God, a great evangelist. They're all under the Church of England, okay? But they get this feeling like the Church of England doesn't reach out to the poor community. So George Whitfield starts preaching in the poor mining communities around uh, England. And these miners who would never go to this official state church are coming out, they're covered in soot, and they're listening to George preach open air, and they're getting saved by the hundreds. John and Charles begin to do that exact same uh, ministry. And as a result of that, all of these Methodist societies start appearing all over England. Now remember, this is all under the Church of England. It all belongs. It's, it's under their umbrella. It's the places where there is no Church of England. So they have these Methodist societies. It's growing all over the place. So they have their first convention, and they determine that many of the societies are getting a little bit too big, so they need to be divided. They divided, systematically divided, the societies into bands, and then into classes, always organizing, always making sure that there was uh, small groups. Where did they get that from? Mom. Mom. They made sure that in all their little classes, in all their societies, in all their bands, lay people, they could do it. They got that from mom. John begins to plant schools all over England to educate poor people. They have the letters of her, him writing his mom. Mom, help. How would you establish this school? And John and Charles would spend the rest of their lives doing this. John Wesley would preach 40,000 sermons. Some suggest that he rode over 250,000 miles on horseback in the course of his life. He preached several times a day and wrote or edited around 400 publications. His brother Charles was the hymn writer. He did a little preaching too, but he was mostly known for his hymns. Charles Wesley wrote over 6,000 hymns. Can you imagine that? And many we still sing today. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Do you all know that? Written by Charles Wesley. Oh, for a thousand tongues written by Charles Wesley. Come thou long expected Jesus, written by Charles Wesley. 
So is there a, as Methodism is growing, it eventually becomes a part of the Great Awakening, which is also included by the Baptists, the Puritans, all of these other dissenters, and it begins to impact all of the world, even in America, where there's this break from sort of the formal high church into these more uh, Protestant denominations that were you know, more biblical and, and less ritualistic and willing to see how God would use everybody in the church, not just the ones with the white collars. It's called the Great Awakening. The Methodist church was uh, very... Uh, Involved in what would become the abolition of slavery in England. You guys heard of Wilberforce, John Newton, Methodism had to do with that. Methodism also had to deal with prison reform and debt relief. They, they went all over England and they tried to totally reform the prison conditions and specifically those who were in prison because of debt. Now, why do you think they thought of that? That's a daddy one, right? (laughs) Through their efforts, there came an end to child labor, an end to cruelty to animals. The Methodist denomination, 80 million Methodists today all around the world, countless Methodist orphanages, hospitals, colleges. And you could link that all essentially to a single mother who homeschooled 10 kids. Facing poverty and tragedy and sickness all of her life. It's just an incredible story. She was spiritually devoted Organized, methodical, promoter of lay ministry. You see her obvious link to Methodism. And here's another great quality for her. She was just an incredible mom. She was an incredible mom. All of her kids loved her. They would write to mom. There's letters from Charles to mom, John to mom. The daughters to mom. They asked her about everything. And she gave great counsel. Her husband dies. She's kicked out of the rectory. She has no place to live. She's homeless. She has to sell more than half the furnishings, as I mentioned. She finds a home with all of her kids. Their houses are open. Mom comes. She's well taken care of. At the end of her life, she falls sick, she grows ill, she's in and out of conscience, she's surrounded by her living children at the end of her life. According to the record, she awoke 12 hours before her death and declared, my dear Savior, are you come to help me in my extremity at last? And as Susanna had requested... Her children, to whom she had devoted so much of her time, energy, and love, sang a psalm of praise to God at her death, and she passed. Have you guys heard of Eric Metaxas? 
or he's in, he wrote the he wrote this book called Seven Women, Great Women, and the Secret of Their Greatness. One of the women he chose was Susanna Wesley, and I got a lot of uh, extra material from his chapter, and I love how he sums up her life. Anyone believing that the life of a woman dedicated to her family must be less than optimal cannot know the story of Susanna Wesley. Despite poverty, illness, a difficult marriage, and heartbreak in endless forms, she used her intellect, creativity, time, energies, and will in such a way that can hardly be reckoned The world in which we live owes much of the goodness in it to her life. When I think of Susanna Wesley, I think of the noble woman of Proverbs chapter 31. I think of that verse. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, by the way, he he did call her blessed. And he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Her children rise. Her actual children rose up and called her blessed. But I also think all of her spiritual children, all of the people that were impacted through the life of her children. She was a great woman. There are many... uh, Lessons that I would get from Susanna Wesley. Number one, parenting. Being a mommy. Being a daddy. Big time important, wouldn't you say? Big time important. The influence that you can have on kids. The spiritual influence that you can have on kids. I would also... Uh, think of the lesson from, from Susanna Wesley, her commitment to her personal walk with God. I just found that so beautiful. No matter how busy she got, she always made time to spend time with the Lord, and that had such a, a, a huge impact in her life. And then I also think of her life, I think of this incredible thing. I think, um, I, I think that truly... Marvelous and beautiful things can happen right in the mess of life. Right in the mess of life. When I think of Susanna Wesley, I kind of think of that lady. (laughs) I mean, I don't know how she held it all together. And I'm sure there were days she's pulling her hair out. But with God, there was beauty in all that mess. There was beautiful things happening in the daily grind. How hard it could have been. But oh, how God was at work. Mom, maybe, you're, maybe you feel like that lady right there. Maybe you think, I don't know how to hold it all together. Listen, you keep serving God. You keep pouring your faith into your children. You keep up at it. There's beautiful things happening. Maybe it's not a mom. Maybe you live in the daily grind of education, on the hustle and bustle of business, day by day. 
day by day. It's a grind. There's all kinds of things pulling at you. And sometimes you think, oh, what kind of life do I have? With God, there's beauty in the mess. God is always doing beautiful things in the grind of life through his people. So you remember that. You remember that. You keep being that man of God, that woman of God in the daily grind. Amen? Let's close. Lord, we thank you so much for, uh, Lord, in the midst of broken things, in the midst of difficult things, in the midst of uh, uncertainty, Lord, that you can do amazing things. We thank you for Susanna Wesley. We thank you for her great testimony that she leaves behind. How encouraging it is. Lord, I'd like to pray for all of us parents here tonight. No matter how old our kids are. No matter what's happened in the past. I pray that right now we would commit to be parents that will lead our children in your ways. Father, I pray for um, beautiful families, beautiful children, beautiful marriages. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged tonight to, to, to set aside those times every day to meet with you. How we need that. We need to meet with you. Lord, I also pray that, um, like Susanna did, would be those who serve you in whatever capacity you've called us whether we are ordained pastors or not. Use your people in wonderful ways, I pray. Lord, for those who are weary tonight by the grind of life, I pray that you'd give them great encouragement. Help them to find the beauty in it. Bless them and use them. Remind them of how important their lives are to other people on a day-by-day basis, Father. Thank you for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen.